This morning, I intend to wrap up our series introducing our ministry theme for the year 2022, which we've called Worship, um, in the sense that we'll be wrapping it up in the corporate sense of worship. And that is answering the question, what is it that the church does when we gather? There has um, been a significant amount of, especially in Baptist circles, emphasis placed on the individual nature of our salvation and our relationship to God. And I believe that that is true and that it is correct. I want you guys to hear me this morning. If you are saved, your salvation is because you have put your faith in God. If you are not saved and you think that there is a chance that you will inherit the kingdom of God upon God's Jesus' promises based off of your family's faith or community's faith or because you live in a tradition that's generally been shaped by Christianity, you are not saved and you will most likely inherit hell, as we all deserve. That is not to say, though, and, and the reason for our sermon series this month has been to look at what is this community aspect of salvation. If we wanted to be really nerdy, we would call it, what is this ecology of salvation, or what does it actually look like in our world or in, through the kingdom of God? One of the things that is incredibly clear as we study Scripture is that God works in communities. He works in not just individuals, but in people. Remember, the original salvific ecology was in the nation of Israel. God's promises and inheritances were given to a particular people that were called out from among the rest of the world. And so that is also true in the church. God's people are his inheritors of these promises. We've been grafted into the nation of Israel, that we are made one and that these things come to be. And so we've looked at worship in the sense, what does the church do? And we've done this for six weeks now, looking at, hopefully you can see now, all of the things that take place on a Sunday morning. Well, we talked about fellowship last week, and you had the opportunity to turn around and immediately apply fellowship as we enjoyed a fellowship meal following the morning service. Well, we have also talked about singing. Every Sunday morning, if you go to a Bible teaching church, I believe you will hear God's people singing and proclaiming the Word of God, teaching one another through songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, we've also talked about the preaching of God's Word and how preaching is not something that just exists as a mandate for the preacher or for the man of God, but this is something that all of God's people are participating in as we proclaim His Word. We've also talked about... What else have we talked about? We've talked about preaching, singing. We've talked about fellowshipping. What else is there? that we do on a Sunday morning? Oh, we've talked about prayer. That's right. Forgot about that one. We've talked about praying. What do we need to talk about in the sense that what else takes place in a Sunday morning service? Well, this is the one that no one wants to talk about, giving. 
giving. I make the point to say because to an outsider coming into the church, I think it definitely appears weird if we had some wanderer come and visit us for worship and they saw us passing around a gathering plate. It might be even off-putting. Why do we do it? Why don't we just stop it? Well, because we don't do it to please ourselves. When I introduced the theme for worship, I tried to make the point that the church does not have free liberty to conduct itself in any way that it would desire to do, but the church must conduct itself in a way that is according to Scripture. That we must abide by what God has told us to do. And so, we can't design worship services after what we want in our own heart. After all, that would be worshiping ourselves. We would be designing worship to please us rather than to please God. And so, we don't design worship to please ourselves. We design it to please God. And so, we leave in our worship service this part of the service that requires that I introduce it by saying, this is the most awkward thing that takes place in a Baptist church. This morning, I want to talk about how we worship in giving. Because if we don't talk about it, this is what could happen. We could allow our minds to drift away from the prescribed elements of worship, and it could simply become a pragmatic means of running the church. There is nothing that could be more devastating, I believe, in the eyes of God, that our worship to Him would simply become doing something to run a church. Loved ones, if we're going to worship God in all authenticity, authenticity, we must first place at the forefront of our mind that we are not running a business. We have to get away from the secularization of the church. That is, the people who would come into the church with common sense, worldly nonsense and try to run spiritual things. We must run the church of God as a spiritual people called out by God to live by faith according to His Word. So then, when we talk about giving, it is not a pragmatic means of running a church. It's not done simply for the benefit of keeping the lights on. It is done that the people of God may worship with their possessions in honoring and glorifying God. With that said, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 2. And you'll notice this is the same passage we looked at last week when we discussed fellowship. But you hopefully noticed that last week through our exegesis of the word, we skipped verses 43, 44, and 45. And so we were returning there this week so that we can look at them. With your Bibles open, I invite you to pray that we would read from God's word and hear what he has to say to us. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this morning, the time that we have to gather in this place. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the light that it is that guides our path, that directs our steps. Lord, I thank you for your spirit, which gives us insight and illuminates to us the truth and the meaning of the words found in Scripture. Lord, I pray that you would not withhold yourself from us this morning. God, I pray that you would give us insight, that we would understand these divine things with clarity. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might be able to behold the amazing truth found in your law. In Jesus' precious name I pray. 
Amen. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I'll direct your attention first to verse 44. The Bible speaking of the first church or the early church that has begun to take shape after Jesus has just preached in Jerusalem. He's preached a message. He's made appeals to Psalm 16 in this message. I encouraged you last week to go back and look at Jesus' sermon. If you haven't done that, you can still do that this week. It's still there. And I encourage you to go back and look at that. The result was phenomenal. Phenomenal. About 3,000 souls were added to the church the first day of Pentecost. This is incredible. The people came, but who were these people and where did they come from? Well, this is the important part for us to really understand what's taking shape in verses 44 and 45. The people that were gathered in Jerusalem were not from Jerusalem. They were from all over. In fact, it says that this day was significant in its importance because it was a feast day according to the Jewish tradition. And so these people were sojourners or they were travelers. They had come from faraway places. They had come to Jerusalem in order to worship God. And while there, they heard the word of God preached. They heard the word of God declared. They heard the word of God proclaimed before them and they put their faith in the one who came to fulfill all of the Old Testament texts. They put their faith in Christ and the apostles baptized them after professing their faith. They were baptized according to this proclamation and these souls were added to the church. Well, we must ask this question of ourselves too. In accomplishing the Great Commission, what are we doing? When we go out into all of the world, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are we simply to walk away and leave? Are we simply to walk away and let them grow in their faith on their own? Or Baptist, we say that this word is completely infallible. Could I perhaps simply take a copy of the Bible and hand it to them and say, this is everything you need to know? Or is there more to it? The Great Commission goes on, baptizing them and discipling them, teaching them, disciplining them, raising them up, giving them understanding, not just giving them this word, while it is sufficient for all things that they would need, also explaining it, helping them to grow. And so these people who were all flocking to Jerusalem in Acts, what do you think would happen to them if they all went on their way? If they all returned to their faraway homes? Well, they would look like much of the church today, spiritually asleep and lethargic. 
supposing and needing to be able to consume meat, but still eating the things of infancy, bottling themselves up by drinking milk and honey. Well, the early church did not abandon their early converts. They held them together. Verse 44 says, all who believed were together. Well, these people didn't leave. They didn't go home. They didn't escape to their faraway places to be left to their own devices, but they were together. They were brought in to community. Here's the issue of fellowship again. They were brought and they had all things in common. Now consider this. Because this is the mark of Christian unity and Christian spirit. I want you to notice when we talk about giving in the church or when we talk about the sacrificial worship of the church, this is an issue of being together. That the church would hold all things together and that they would live in this way is a way of sacrifice for providing for the needs of those who came to believe. The early church, some might read this passage and see images of socialism. Loved ones, that is not what we read here. What we find is converts in need of growing in maturity, and so we provide for them. The early church gathered together in Jerusalem. Well, they were together, and those who had property in Jerusalem took care of those who were running out of means. Anyone who has ever traveled knows that you spend way more money than you planned on spending. Unless your brother James, and I imagine brother James as an accountant knows exactly how much money he's going to spend at all times. But anytime that I travel, I always spend more money than I planned on spending. It's expensive, and I just don't take into account all of the expenses. These people traveling to Jerusalem to worship God for the feast, I imagine they had some sort of a budget in mind. They made provisions, preparations, probably asked people to watch everything that was going on back home to make sure that their dogs were being watered and fed and everything else. They made their way to Jerusalem to worship God. They didn't plan on being there this long, but they heard the word of God preached and they needed to stay so that they could grow in maturity. So those people who were in Jerusalem provided for them holding all things in common. In fact, this phrase, all things in common, is a colloquialism in the original language. That is, it's a little phrase that we use oftentimes to mean something that we miss part of the meaning. To the original hearers of this, this would have meant that they were more than together, that they were not just friends, but they were close friends, that they shared everything. What bound them together? What bound these strangers I mean, consider it. These people are, for lack of a better term, they're strangers. How do I know this person? I don't even know where they're from. In fact, the gift of tongues was given because these people didn't all speak the same language. What held them together? What bound them together? Was it an experience? I think experiencing Pentecost would have been something to hold me together with somebody. Was it necessity? Was it just because they were sojourners, that they were traveling, that they needed provisions, and so they needed to be provided for? Sure, I think that's part of it. Ultimately, though, what held them together was a person. It was the person. It was the father that had grafted them together through adoption. It was the son that had purchased them with the sufficient payment of his own blood. It was the spirit that dwelt within their hearts that was grafting them and bringing them together. One spirit inside of the hearts of many that made these people not just close, 
but one. One body, as Paul would say later. These people lived together. They were crafted together. This is the issue of giving in the church. Second, these people had possession. They held all things in common. And verse 45 goes on to say that they were selling their possessions and belongings. These people had possessions. Now, here's why I say that the Bible is not teaching socialism. Exodus 20, verse 15, says that you shall not steal. There's nothing wrong with having possessions. These people didn't run up and open a commune where they sold everything and held community property. For it to be possible to steal, you have to have personal property. But this is actually an issue that has existed all throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament. The issue of providing those, providing for those who have need. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 10 reads, And you shall not strip your vineyards bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This is a command coming directly from God that His people would be a generous and giving people. That when they were to reap the harvest of their vineyards, they weren't to reap the harvest from the corners of their field. They were supposed to leave it. They weren't supposed to reap the harvest that had naturally fallen on the ground because that was to be given to the poor, those travelers, those people who needed it. God's people, since the very beginning, have been commanded to be a generous and giving people. Even in understanding this, while some of it, I believe, is corrupted through human nature as we read in the Old Testament, we're given glimpses throughout the Bible of what the economy of God's people is actually to look like. The prophet Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 25, verse 4 and 5, speaking of what the kingdom of God would look like when the Messiah finally came to this world, saying, You have been a stronghold for the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like a heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the strong of the ruthless is put down. God's people have always been commanded to live this way, but what we find in the prophesying of Isaiah and him telling us what was meant to come and what was expected for the future is that it would be better than what humans could actually manage on their own. That God's people would in fact be so generous that there would be no one that would have need. Jesus taught on this himself. In Luke chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, he says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Loved ones, in being generous, as God commands us to do, what the early church demonstrated was more than just the ability to give. More than just the ability to take possession and to hold it and to be a steward for God's people. But they demonstrated generosity that communicated the very compassion of a Savior. They demonstrated a compassion of a one who descends from heaven and all of the glories of heaven that he could come and take our place. 
In a spiritual sense, if we want to talk about the real economy of the Bible, everyone is poor. Everyone is born destitute and poor. But because of a Savior, we have been exalted to a place of being very rich. We've been adopted as sons that we might have an inheritance that provides for us in the future. Here is God's people coming together with their possessions. Let me point out something real fast. Verse 43 makes mention of signs that were being done through the apostles. Signs that were testimonies to everyone around who could observe them in seeing what God has done in this people is remarkable. For much of this passage does not tell us what these signs and wonders are. In fact, we have to get all the way to chapter 3 before we begin to see Peter and John healing anyone. The signs and the wonders in the immediate context, in the immediate, most relevant part of this passage, it is that God's people were generous towards one another. It is that God's people were grafted together that they received their food and that they had fellowship with one another and with generous hearts that they were praising God and having favor with all of the people. Look at the real sign of the early church. Was it miracles? Was it marvels? Was it these testimonies, the special supernatural gifts? That was part of it, certainly. But the greater sign that stood before all people, that made people have favor with all people, as verse 47 says, was the way that God's people lived together. Not only in fellowship, but in sacrifice. The main concern, the main sign being demonstrated here is the sign of concern. Now listen, I am not saying that the church should be responsible to make sure that everyone who has nothing has something. In fact, I would say even in an appropriate context, the emphasis here is in providing for believers. I still believe that Paul's teaching on this issue holds water, that if a man will not work, he should not eat. Even in holding to the passage in Leviticus, it wasn't left for the harvester or the one who owned the vineyard to pick up or harvest the food that should be left to the sojourner or the traveler, but that was left for the traveler to harvest themselves. They still had to do work even though they were provided for. Proverb 12, 24 teaches us this principle that the hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 12, verse 27 goes on teaching the same thing, that whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. So here, I think there is somewhat of a conflict of understanding in how are we to uphold living a special community or worshiping God with our possessions. And the issue is simply this. How are we stewards of what God has given us? And this is ultimately the issue that makes our tithes and our offerings worship at all. It is, yes, that I have to work for it. Yes, that I have to hustle in order to make ends meet. But that in my mind, I should possess the compassion of Christ. In my mind, I should see the needs of others, and I should not eat up everything that I have worked for. 
The Bible teaches us a great deal about how we are to manage our money. It is a foolish man that spends everything that he earns. It is a foolish person that gets a paycheck and spends every dollar that they have received. The biggest mistake that I remember seeing parents make in in my days of youth ministry was that these students would go off and they would get jobs and their parents would not teach them how to start a savings or how to tithe. They would go off and, well, this is just youthful money. They've made all of this money. They can do with it what they want or how they want to spend it. What are we really teaching our children when we teach them to grow up this way? Not only are we teaching them bad money management, but we're teaching them that this is their money. And maybe the reason that we've taught them that is because that's what we believe of our own money. That what we have is our own money. Loved ones, if we have a right view of everything that we possess as people that have been adopted by God, the view should be this. The reason there was breath enough in my lungs to stand up and go work, strength enough in my legs to go and toil, was because God put it there. The reason the sun came up that I might be able to work was because God told it to rise. Yeah, I might work. It might be my sweat. But who, pr- pr- who, who created the system in my body that makes me sweat when I get hot? Was it not God? Everything that I do does not belong to me because if I've been adopted by God, I have been bought and purchased with a price that God has adopted me as His Son, that I am no longer my own, that I am His that I would be willing to consider myself a slave for him. And then also everything that I have, because it is by God's sovereignty that I was able to possess it, it belongs to God. He calls me a steward of his own possessions so that as I go throughout this world caring for my house that I worked for, well, that belongs to God. I'm not caring for my house, but I'm taking care of it for my master. He teaches me how to take care of my money. And in the Old Testament, we see this implementation of what's called the tithe, something that literally means a tenth. Many in the church today think that that is still the prescribed method of sacrifice that we're to give the church a tenth. You were also wrong. The Old Testament may have commanded a tenth, but let's be clear, the New Testament asks for 100%. It asks for all of you. Paul writes to the church in Rome telling them that you are to make yourself a living sacrifice. Chapter 12, verse 1. What does real genuine sacrifice look like for the church? What does giving people look like for the church? There are no limits. It's recognizing that everything that I have belongs to God. And so why do we uphold this practice of taking up an offering on Sunday morning? Why is it that we pass around this offering plate for the sake of appearing awkward or for maintaining a business? What is it that we're doing? What is it that God's people are doing as they put their tithes and their offerings in the offering plate? They're not just supporting their church. They're not paying membership fees. What are they doing? Just like prayer, just like preaching, just like fellowship, just like singing, God's people are in their minds saying, 
Everything that I have, I have because of you, God. I give this back to you. Because I need to remember that everything that I have left is still yours. That when I leave this place, when I weed eat my lawn, and I'm concerned about it looking right, it is out of concern that you would be glorified in the way that I keep up my home. What are God's people doing when they write checks and they leave it in offering plates? Is it a sign of show? Is it so that they could be in possession to run the church? No, we give it to God because we recognize that all comes from Him. Verse 45 says that the people were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Paul warns of this type of system being abused. But as Dr. Luke writes here, what we see is that the people were less concerned about the system being abused and more concerned with glorifying God. This is often the problem that we find in hard-hearted people, people that have been let down and deceived by a world that is full of unregenerate people. I don't know about you, but if you've ever contributed to somebody who is significantly in need and you had strong hopes that you were really helping them pull themselves up and that they were going to establish themselves well, and they turn around and they do the same stupid stuff that got them into the position where they had need to begin with. You all know exactly what I'm talking about. It is so hard, or so easy rather, for our hearts to become so calloused towards the needy because of this that we no longer see any benefit in doing what God commands us to do by being generous to begin with. I want to point out that all of the warnings that Paul offers later on in the New Testament were no concern for the early church. The people who had experienced Pentecost, the people who were drawn together by what God had done through working in them in the Holy Spirit, those people were not concerned. Those people did what God burdened them to do because He burdened them to do it. They gave freely and generously. And it was a testimony, not just to their special community, but to the auxiliary community beyond them that saw what was happening in God's people and they said, wow, what a marvelous thing is taking place there. These conversions must be something more than religious fanaticism. These conversions must be real genuine concern for something divine. They were selling their possessions. They were distributing the proceeds to all. There's three signs that we find in verses 44 and 45. That the people were together. That the people made use of their possessions for God. And that the people demonstrated real concern. There's much that we could say about the theology that goes behind an offering or a sacrifice. But I'd like to close this morning a little bit early 
with these closing thoughts. If you are making offerings and sacrifices to God and you are doing it from a place of routine, it is a profane odor that you are making sacrifices to God with. If you contribute to what God has told you to contribute to with the wrong attitude, it is profanity. It is disgusting and revolting. Because it must be worship. It must come from the place that God has placed this burden on your heart. Second, if you are neglecting to contribute to the needs of the church and the needs of the people around you, to contribute to the needs of the poor, because your heart has become hard and calloused. You are living in disobedience to God. Now hear me, I'm I'm not contradicting myself. I told you in point one that if you're doing this with the wrong attitude, that it's profane, so you shouldn't do it. And I told you in point two that if you're not doing it, that it's also profane that you should do it. Here's the trouble whenever we read God's word. While those things are both true, the command is for us to do it and do it with the right attitude. To give to God willingly from the overflow of the burdens that he's put in our heart. And to do it recognizing that all that we have comes to him. That belongs to him. Third, if you neglect giving to God with a generous heart and an uplifted spirit, if you neglect it because you have not left room in your budget, because it seems like you're stretched out from week to week between paychecks, God does not condemn you. But he does call you to proper biblical stewardship. This is a real problem. And I don't want to trivialize it. I'm struggling to speak about it just because I don't like talking about money in a general sense. I think the state of most Americans today is that we live beyond our means. I think it's a a common position for a lot of Americans to live in a state where they live beyond what they actually make. And they feel ostracized by the church that tells them that it's necessary that they tithe and that they contribute to God's ministry because they feel pushed out because they're unable because there is nothing left over. Loved ones, I want to share with you that the Bible does have the answers for all things pertaining to life and faithfulness. I've gone to financial counselors. I have an accountant. I don't run my money based off of how people tell me to run it. I run my money based off of how God tells me to run it. 
There is ample advice for setting up your household in a strong and a diligent way, more than I could possibly cover in a morning sermon, more than I could possibly teach in a morning sermon. Loved one, I want to invite you this morning, if that is your case or that is your position, to know that God has a plan not just for the liberation of his people in a spiritual sense, but to be a peculiar people living in this world with financial freedom built into the way that they live. Loved ones, I have resources that I could give you to help you. I hope that you know that when we come to church, we don't just come to church that we could meet our spiritual needs, but we are concerned too with our physical needs. There's counseling that we can provide that walks through the scriptures, that answers these questions, that teaches us how to take care of our family, how to take care of our own house, how to manage the money that God has put into our possession. And I'll give you the first step. Honor God with what you have. And all of the counsel that we could go through about making a budget and everything else, the first step is honor God with what you have. Give to Him because He's already given to you. Those are my three pieces of advice. I hate talking about money. Unfortunately, the Bible speaks about it a great deal. Which means I'm not in a position to not talk about money. It's my second least favorite thing to talk about. But what we do as a church when we come together is not designed for our own glory or our own benefit, is it? What we do when we come together as a church is designed for God's glory and God's benefit. For His glory, we do all things. And so rather than than designing worship according to what I would want to do by avoiding talking about money at all and just trusting that God is able to provide in all needs and everything else, I must speak about it when we come to it in the Bible. Likewise, whenever I come to difficult passages in the Bible that deal with sexual issues, I have to talk about those too. Fortunately, the Bible talks more about money than it does sexual issues. Because that's my first least favorite thing to talk about in the Bible. Because I'm a prude Baptist. (laughs) With that, I'll close. We'll have a time of invitation. Invite you all to stand and to consider the words of the song that we will sing and considering how you would glorify God. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, I pray that you guide us in understanding how we worship you in all things that take place on a Sunday morning. God, I pray that you protect us from being a complacent people. God, protect us from the hard-heartedness that has infiltrated your people since the beginning of history, that we would be peculiar as we rely on the Holy Spirit that now dwells within us, giving us understanding and peace and illumination to be resolved to glorify you. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Thing number three hundred.